The question in my mind is, how do you create or relaunch a highly profitable and successful six to seven figure business? With so much conflicting advice about the best ways to start and grow your business, how do you get it right the first time? I want to help entrepreneurs make a real difference and navigate the messy world of startup or relaunch. My name is John North, and this is the Startup Secrets for Entrepreneur Show. Join me today when we dig deep with our guests and get you the best blueprint so you can fast track your own business. This episode is sponsored by Volpreneur.app, your all-in-one online business system. Make sure you subscribe for future episodes at StartupSecrets.show right now. So let's get into the day's episode. You're listening to the Startup Secrets for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, John North, and my mission is to help entrepreneurs make a difference and navigate the messy world of startup or relaunch, which is commonly called the pivot. Um, Join me today, and we dig deep with our guests and get you the best concepts and strategies to fast-track your business. So my very special guest today is Ken Bryant, and um, he's currently living in Melbourne. So welcome, Ken, to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Cool. So... um, Based on my discussions, you're an author and a, and, um, a speaker, and obviously speaking is not exactly the, the greatest thing right now, but certainly an author is um, certainly an interesting thing to do, and I think it's for, for us it's always been a, a situation where people get a real clear understanding of who they are and what they're about when they write a book, because that really encapsulates their, themselves in that, in that story. So um, how long ago did you write your book? It took me about two years to write, because I, I was... Uh... I'd write furiously for like a month and then I would take a week or two off. Then I'd write furiously for a week or two and then I'd take two weeks. So, you know, whatever, it was a lot of gaps back and forth. And the gaps really helped me because it, it, I would I would think through ideas in the back of my mind or I'd be thinking about better ways to say something or I'd think of completely different additional areas to add. So for me, that really worked well. And I was retired at the time I was writing, which I, I'm still retired. And so... It wasn't as though I had to. I had the luxury of not having to work around a, a working schedule. You know, I was no longer head of any of the firms I had started. I was no longer on any board of directors. I'd, I'd stopped doing all of that stuff. I'd stopped being an employee, so I could really concentrate on the book and goof off. Mm, makes sense, and that's good. No pressure. So the book's called Positive Vision: Enjoying the Adventures and Advantages of Poor Eyesight. So. Um, tell us a little bit about that and, and what you, um, obviously, sometimes the poor, poor eyesight can be an advantage, I'm guessing. I absolutely. Can. I'm, I'm not, very importantly, I'm not at all saying that poor eyesight is better than good eyesight. Good eyesight is absolutely better than poor eyesight. But you might as well laugh about and think about and acknowledge if you have poor eyesight that there are some advantages. Yeah, I mean, everybody's, um, I think it also obviously enhances your other skills as well, then, or your other, other senses too. Yes, I, I don't think that's one of them. I, I don't think it actually makes them better. It's just that, unlike most people, you actually pay attention to them more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do. <laughs> so how, how, um, how, how uh, visually challenged are you in terms of, of eyesight? Like? I, uh, th- I was... Uh, poor vision throughout my entire life, uh, and it's been sort of a roller coaster. I've had uh, big, big ups and downs. I've had six eye operations, two 
uh, detached retina in each eye, a cataract operation in each eye, and two others. Um, my, I was legally blind for many years. But now I see, and uh, if you describe it in uh, metric, it's 624 wow. in my good eye, which means um, what you can see at 24 uh, meters away, I have to be six meters away for. And then my bad eye is twice as bad as that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is actually great for me. That's way better than most of my life. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Like, thanks to see it all, I guess, huge, a bonus, right? Yeah, it would, exactly. Thanks to medical science advances and all research and doctors and nurses, you know, it's just spectacularly nice to have that vision. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. So you, you ran some consulting firms. So what was the, the, the backstory of that? I, um, I, for, I'm 66 and I've had, uh, a lot of time working uh, since I was, you know, 20 or 18 or something. Um, most of my career was in information technology. And then I switched halfway through my career to cybersecurity and I worked for many different consulting firms and other firms at Pricewaterhouse, Ernst and Young. Etc. And I also had my own firm for over a decade. So I, or firms, uh, starting out in IT, I don't, Wall Street based IT consulting firm, and then uh, also a cybersecurity based firm. We had clients literally all over the world for the cybersecurity firm. Then, for totally unrelated reasons, uh, my wife and I moved to from New York City to Australia. And you know, I didn't, I literally knew three people in Australia, so that wasn't going to be a good way to start consulting. So I, uh, I ended up working for one of them at Ernst & Young, did that for many years, uh, became the lead cybersecurity officer for the Australia division of ANZ for a while. And then I, then I retired. Now I'm goofing off being an amateur trumpeter, staying in shape and talking about my book. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at some point you've got to break a break, right? You can't just be doing that. And in particular, I guess the I guess cybersecurity is a fairly high pressure profession. At the end of the day, isn't it? Well, it it can be as high or low pressure, I think, as you want. There's an infinite amount of work in cybersecurity, and the demand for people keeps growing. Uh, you know, as you know, it's almost impossible to not read about cybersecurity in the general press mm. and the general news every week or in many cases every day between ransomware and all kinds of other break-ins you know cybersecurity issues related and privacy related issues are are just front of mind for many people at all levels up to board of directors yeah and i mean it's getting worse it seems to be getting worse and worse as the as the technology improves and as and plenty of the other countries get into it i mean I think I read somewhere that Russia spends more money on cyber, you know, cyber attacks than it spends on rockets. Because <laughs> you know, like, you know, they figure they can do far well, more damage, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you're much less likely to get blown up by cyber attacks, literally. <laughs> yeah, you probably probably got to turn your pacemaker off or something, in comparison remotely or something like that. <laughs> so, what's the book about? Like, is is it your story, or is it you know, is it insight? Yes, it's a it's a memoir, a, a comedy adventure memoir. It's, right. it's I had not wanted to discuss 
anything related to my eyesight while I was working because <laughs> I thought it would be detrimental to my career. Sure. I didn't want people to know that I could actually see much less than, I mean, people obviously realized I, I had poor vision, you know, mm. uh, but they probably most of them didn't realize how poor. And I was happy to keep it that way and not discuss the subject because I thought it would be, I would lose potential opportunities. Mm. Yeah, for sure. But now, now being retired, I thought, all right, well, let me write this uh, book. So I, I have a whole lot of different stories that people have found to be, uh, funny or exciting when I would tell them over beers or coffee or whatever uh, over the years. So I took all those stories and I put them in a book and and that's what it is. So it's just about adventures and advantages of poor eyesight. It's mm. from, you know, parachuting and, uh, you know, working as a cowboy briefly in the West and U.S. and uh, adventures with uh, various fires and caves uh, through different ad ad advantage and, and, and mixed in with all of this are, you know, discussions of the advantages of poor eyesight. Mm -hmm. Things like, I think there's some big advantages in terms of the world being a more beautiful place, you know, better balance, better public speaking, creativity and imagination, all kinds of things. So there's, there's practical examples about that in there. And, Again, I'm not saying poor eyesight's better than good eyesight, but people with poor eyesight, yeah, it's good. It's good for them to think about it once in a while. They do have a couple of little edges that they might not realize. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at the end of the day, like um, you know, everybody's got some disadvantages and, and, and some skills that aren't very good at. It's like it just depends on you know <laughs> what's going on and whether they're suitable for the what's going with that situation. But at the end of the day, you've got to make up with whoever you got. It. Nobody's perfect. So at the end of the day, you've got to you got to use you know go to your strengths. I think a lot of people seem to think, oh, I've got to improve in certain areas when they're actually got better superpowers in other areas they should should actually work on and get even better at it than than beating themselves up about stuff they can't. In your case, you know, obviously with an operation stuff, you can do something to a degree, but at the end of the day, you've got to live with what you've got. So you've got to make take advantage of it. Otherwise, and I think a lot of people forget that, like you know, if you've got a superpower, then and you really want to do it, then you should do it. Like you shouldn't try to get in, you know, like if you're not a very good, I don't know, copywriter or something, you're never going to be a good copywriter. There's no point beating yourself up about that and move on to what you're good at and, and get someone else to help you. Yeah, yeah. On, on the other hand, I'm an amateur trumpeter and I've been doing that for years and I, I'm only improving extremely slowly, but I'm sticking with it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sometimes you gotta you gotta push the envelope, right? Like, it, yeah, it uh, it's just practice. At the end of the day, I think it, I know. I think it's. I read something the other day about it. Um, that whenever you do the first thing, something for the first time, you don't. You're never usually that good at it. And when you're a kid, you know, when you're a baby and stuff, you don't think of it, anything of it. Like you just keep doing. It. If a baby fell over the first time and never started to walk, then they would never walk. Well, which probably every single baby did, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, everybody falls over and they get back up again and you keep walking. But for some reason, at some point when you get older, you start thinking, "Oh, if I fall over once, that's it." But I think failing at something or not going that well at it, and then yes, keep on pushing and pushing, you get better. Um, I mean, I play. I agree completely, and I think that applies to all kinds of stuff, including business. You know, people, people who start their own firms or have their own consultancy, and you know, it rocks along for a while, and some of them think it's great, and others go, "Oh, 
I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm a failure. And it's like, wake up, you know. <laughs> I'm actually listening to Steve Jobs' bio at the moment, and I'll tell you what. And I even think the author of the bio said, "Look, you do not want to emulate him. <laughs> you don't want to some of the things that he he did, like and some and the way he was, and a lot yeah, of some guys, of his personal relationships and mm. how he worked with some people, you know, are, are just horrible, you know, yeah. but." Yeah. You know, technically and as a business manager, he did a lot of things good, extremely well. Yeah, and I mean, I think that he had a very um, creative way of seeing things that other people didn't see. And that doesn't make you perfect in everything else. It just makes you a visionary in that area. And you got to wonder if he had lived, how much else would have come out of that brain of his <laughs> like over time. But at the end of the day, he also was very good at taking stuff that was already there. All the stuff that he invented was already in the marketplace. I mean, apparently Dell had, you know, tablets and all sorts of stuff. They all tried to release it, but he got smart with the marketing and managed to get that connection between the customer and the product at a much more deeper personal, emotional level than, than these guys who were just chucking out equipment and saying, here you go, here's a fancy laptop or a fancy tablet, and no one was buying them. <laughs> yeah. Well, or you look at, you know, two contemporaries, uh, you know, Bill Gates and Steve mm. Jobs and, and how completely different those two people are. Yeah, uh, they didn't like each other one little bit, apparently. Really <laughs> special, you know? And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, they both got the same place at the end of the day. So it just proves that he doesn't, you know, doesn't have to be, you know, one type of person or another type of person. And I mean, Bill isn't probably, you know, completely opposite. I think he's more of an introvert than... And Jobs was an extrovert, so it's completely two ends of the spectrum, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it all it all worked out. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your book, and 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 okay. I guess one of the things we spoke about was the how to get that book promoted, and how like say so you've written this book. This is what happens to a lot of people. I, I talk to a lot of people about this stuff, and they write a book, and then they try to market the book. And, and usually um, it's kind of write the book and then market the book. And, and what we usually try to do with clients is actually um, figure out the marketing and everything first, then write the book. But most people kind of write the book and in your case it was for a reason. So what if, what's your challenges been to try and get that book um, out there and, and making sales? Because ultimately it's your legacy, isn't it? You're probably not thinking about getting rich off the back of this book. But <laughs> Well, first of all, I... I should have done it closer to the order you just suggested, figuring out the whole marketing plan and then writing the book. But I, I did not. Mm. I wrote the book, and as, as I was doing it, I was sort of thinking about marketing and everything else. Uh, but at least I was thinking about it. I've talked to many, many writers who they don't. Their idea of marketing is they mention it to everybody they know, and that's their entire marketing, um, mm. which is which is too bad. And then they wonder why they've sold you know forty copies. Um, my marketing, is, I, I need to up it. What I've done so far is um, used LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to figure out Clubhouse. Uh, however, I think I could use them uh, more proactively. I also just spent the last 10 days trying to figure out how to advertise if I wanted to advertise mm-hmm. on Amazon. But that, as far as I can tell at this point, and I could be wrong, but I've, I've got a bunch of queries into Amazon and so far it's not looking good. Um, if you don't publish through Amazon 
and you're just an author of a book that's for sale on Amazon, it doesn't look like there's a way to advertise. You know, they've got all kinds of things for, for you if you're an Amazon author or ADP author, but it doesn't look like they have something if you're not one of them. So, you know, I've got to figure that out. You know, maybe I can do it through somebody else or something. I don't know how that's going to work. So did your, was the book you did um, published on, on, in, on Amazon itself? Did you originally publish it on Amazon? No, it's published from Ingram, Ingram Spark, which is another publisher distributor. And there were some advantages if you're not, at the time I did it, which was very, uh, late last year, there's some advantage, and I don't remember what they are, but there were some advantages to non-Americans to publish on Ingram Spark rather right. than Amazon. Uh, maybe that's different now. I don't know. So you know, with that Ingram, one of the biggest things that people do is they actually tell Ingram to publish the ebook, which is probably what you've done, right? So you've t- told Ingram publish my ebook and everything out everywhere else, right? I've I've had uh, yes Ingram for the hardcover, paperback, and ebook. Yeah. So the biggest mistake with that is that when you get Ingram to publish the ebook, that seems like a great thing to do. But what happens is you lose control of Amazon and Amazon is, is 80 to 90% of the book sales. So what happens then is that you've got very little control over actually adding categories or doing anything with that book at all, as, as well as advertising, which is something I should really warn you about at the start. There's a way around it, but Do you want simple and effective ways to get started that don't cost a fortune in time and money? Discover the best steps for each strategy we teach and the most important areas to focus on, and even to connect with your best customers and grow an online community. Grab your free copy of Startup Secrets for Entrepreneurs at startupsecrets.show. So what you can basically do is go to Amazon and just republish that book on Amazon. So just do the ebook, and I would suggest the paperback as well. And actually publish it on Amazon, because what it's for sale. It's already for sale on Amazon. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, Because what will happen then is Amazon will publish your ebook, and then it'll publish your paperback. So put a paperback up there as well, because they'll preference the paperback for sales, because they make less money out of Ingram. So then what will happen is the the ebook and the paperback that you've published on Amazon will get priority. Now you can go back to. Ingram and ask them to unpublish the ebook at some point, right? But if it's not affecting you, you can just leave it there. And as soon as you do that, then you've got access to all the Amazon tools. And the other thing you don't do on Amazon is don't sign up for Kindle Select. Because what Kindle Select does, in fact, you, you couldn't even do it now, is Kindle Select says you cannot publish your book anywhere else for 90 days. And of course, you already have. So for starters, <laughs> right? But what people do is they think, oh, I'll do that. And then that ties them up because they can't put the ebook anywhere else or even offer it themselves and they get into trouble so i always say to people don't do sim kindle select don't work anyway it's just a way of amazon tying the authors up for 90 days and stuffing them up so if you just republished it it doesn't matter because it's your ebook you can do it republish as much as you like um but that will make a substantial difference potentially in your sales as well um because what ingram does is they are basically just a supplier to amazon and they will simply just and when, they, when they get the order, they pass it on Ingram to, to distribute that order. The game change in Australia now is that Amazon is now printing books in Australia when they used to before. And so that's become a, that's a real game changer because it really means that someone can go to Amazon, buy a book and be able to actually get that book shipped out probably in 24, 48 hours, as opposed to what we used to happen. Yeah. It was supplied at a deposit 
um, books out of UK, which takes two weeks sometimes to get a book. So that's a, a big difference in what you can do because once you start marketing your book then, and on top of all that, Amazon now has brought out the option to actually advertise in Amazon in Australia. So it's actually you can advertise in the Amazon store. Um, not easy because basically Amazon has separate portals for everything. <laughs> so your, your, your .com AU advertising is separate to your .com advertising, bizarrely, and you can't switch between the two easily. Um, but that's Amazon. Everything's what people don't realise with Amazon is every store is totally separate. It looks like it's one big store, but it's not. Every single store in the world is a separate, completely set up store. They just yeah. As soon as, as soon as you're if you sign on to one, yeah, and then you and then you go to the other, you can't actually do anything. You need to like sign in and sign back in. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of bizarre. Um, that's because they're all separate stores and, and they kind of preference you. So. That would certainly be um, a way to kind of get yourself out of trouble. And your your problem is something that's common that's happened. Mm. And I really wish, because we've had scenarios where people come to us because we run bestseller campaigns and we say, okay, we need to talk to Amazon. And then they'll say, oh, hang on, I purposely through Ingram. I said, well, basically we're stuffed. <laughs> There's nothing we can do because Ingram won't send on the category changes or any changes to the book to Amazon so you're basically stuffed. <laughs> um, whereas in this case, you just we just say, look, just publish it on Amazon. It doesn't matter. And the really nice thing about it then is you've got two listings on Amazon for your book. So the, the discoverability is higher then. Um, yeah. But, but Amazon will sneakily um, pref preference, preference their own, which like who cares really? Uh, yeah, exactly. At the end of the day. And the nice thing about that then is you can change your pricing anytime you like. And you can change other options inside it, which you can't change on Ingram. So, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Bit of yeah. workshopping there. Well, you can change shopping. your pricing on Ingram anytime you want, but you can't, uh, you know, that, that, that occurs like everywhere. It's not well, going yes. to one particular outlet. Yeah. And the other problem too is it can take up to two, three months from the change the prices. So yeah. with Amazon, you can change that price and 24 hours later it's changed. So... Okay. Well, it's, it's interesting how the different bookstores around the world pick things up. You know, it's like uh, when, the, when the book first became available, uh, within a day, it was in Amazon. Mm. Within a day and a half at the most, it was in Barnes & Noble. Mm. Uh, and then it spread way, way, way out. You know, there were some... Some places it was like five months before it appeared. You know, mm. it just, you know, it just the uptake. But then you're surprised. They, there was this little tiny bookstore cafe in Texas. They were like, in two days, they had my book. And I'm someday going to go there and buy some coffee or something, you know, just to say thank you for that. I have no idea whether they sold any, but I really like it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, well, I think the funny thing about authoring is that um, when people buy your book, obviously to me it's, and I've done like seven books and every time you do, it, it's like the same thing. It's like someone, wow, someone actually bought and read my book, right? It's a big thing. Yeah. And, and if they actually did something as well, like, you know, I've had, I had one discussion years when I did my very first book, I, this guy lived not far from here in Sydney and he actually contacted me and said, I'd like to have a coffee with you. I said, okay. And I had a coffee with him and he'd actually only got the ebook, but he managed to print it out. So he printed this ebook out and he'd make all these markings on it and questions he had and all this sort of stuff. So we spent an hour having a coffee, but asking all these questions about this book, right? And turned out this guy actually can write a book a week. So he's actually published hundreds wow. of books. 
um, because he's very quick and he's done a lot of business stuff in his past. So he can whack out these books really fast. So it was very interesting on a conversation with the guy and I'm nearly being a client, except I gave him too much ideas and he did it himself. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You went some, you uh, went. But, it, but it is so much fun when somebody reads your book and they come up to you with like my, one of my favorites was uh, I went on a, went on a picnic in, here in Melbourne and it was with my wife and I, and two of our friends and one I had known for long, the, the wife I had known for longer uh, she and I uh, played in the same jazz band for many years. And then her husband was a principal. He advises principals in the Victorian education system. So he runs around helping them. And he read the book and he loved it. And so he comes to the picnic with pages of questions. He goes, I really like this part. Well, let me ask you about this. I really like that. And it was just it was like his wife and my wife were like really, really ready to change the conversation after a while. But I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Everyone likes to talk about themselves, right? So, yeah, no, I think that's an interesting thing because with with um, with the reality is that the book is a legacy. It's been it's there forever now. Like you're on Amazon, yeah. the book is like 500 years time. Theoretically, the book will still be there. Um, so it's an interesting kind of journey. And we've had situations that we've done publishing for clients where, for different reasons, they've published a book. Um, we recently published a, a, a hardcover book for someone who'd actually written. A story about her experiences in Doomagee, which was basically, um, you know, the, the parent, the, the Aboriginals of Doomagee were very badly treated by the, by the um, church and everything like that. And she wrote this whole book about it. And she came to us about she had about two months to live. So basically, wow. she said, "Look, I want to publish. One of the things I want to do is write this book and get it published." And so we helped her publish it. That point, uh, talk about a serious deadline. Yes, pretty serious deadlines. Like, I, my back of my mind is, I'm going to get this done before she she dies, because basically, yeah. it's going to be a completely bad thing. Really, if it happens that we don't actually deliver. And you know, she'd been writing that book for years, but obviously now we had a deadline. <laughs> and, oh, what a joy it must have been to her to see it. Yeah, we got photos of her. Like, I'd never met her personally. I've spoke to her phone a couple of times, but the the apparently my sister who was involved in it, she was so the, she was so incredibly grateful that she'd managed to do it. And then I said to her, well, this is just a printed book. You know, we printed a book for you. We could just put it on Amazon for you. And so we, he said, okay, might as well. So I put it up on Amazon. And then she actually managed to get into the, into the Townsville Bulletin on a two-page spread about the whole thing. And the sales of the book started picking up, right? And it's an cool. expensive book because we had to actually do it in colour and she'd taken all these photos, which weren't great photos. We just sort of make it look better and it sounded really nice. And but it was expensive to print. So it was like a 40 yeah. book, right? Um, and so at the end of the day, it was like, a, that's a legacy for her. Now her fam, she's told her family about it and the family got copies. And, and so sometimes writing a book isn't necessarily about making a lot of money. It's about telling your story and, and having some sort of impact in, you know, even if you impact 10 people, it doesn't mean you're going to impact 10 million people. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's that one person if one person reads your book and gets some value from it, that's well and truly worth it, in my opinion. Well, yeah, especially when you get, uh, you know, comments or feedback from, you know, somebody who was discouraged about things and, and now they're, you know, looking at things more positively. It's, it's really, you feel like, you know, even if it was just that one person, mm-hmm. it, the whole thing is worth it, you know. And the other thing too, I think, is in the whole um, what we find with authors is that um, when they're writing books, there's that imposter syndrome kicks in pretty fast. 
And so as they're writing the book or processing through the book, they get to the point where you've got to publish it. And then and sometimes we'll send them the printed layouts and they'll go, they'll stop. Suddenly you hear nothing from them for weeks. Mm. And it's like, ah, now I'm worried that I'm people, what people are going to think of me. And I always say to most authors, what other people think of is none of your business anyway. <laughs> so at the end of the day, like, <laughs> I, I had heard that. I like that a lot. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything, right? And so at the end of the day, like, you know, there's plenty of books on, there's a blank book on Amazon called What um, Men Know About Women. It's totally blank. And so, you know, it's a, it's a coffee table book. It's got thousands of reviews. <laughs> like it's a funny book. <laughs> but it, you open the page up, so this book is intentionally blank. Um, so if someone can write a blank book and sell it, then surely the God you could write, you know, a reasonable book. And obviously some things, you know, need, you know, you need to have a decent sort of book. But I think at the end of the day, you know, you're not writing War and PC, you're not writing, you know, the next Harry Potter. And, and just the experience of doing it, even if it's the first one's not so good, it means that the next one will be better. It's like you just keep, you know, plugging away with it. And the really nice thing about it is that pretty much you can replace that book on online. If you go through a couple of chapters and think, oh, geez, I don't really like that chapter. And you could rewrite and republish that book. And the, and, and the digital versions are, are overwritten and the, and the physical versions are now printed with a new version. So it's not like you've set something in stone that's there forever. That's true. Although I'm, and I don't think I'd change any of it anyway. And so, you know, so far, so recommend it. <laughs> but, but going back to your, your point of, you know, people judging you, I, I did while I was writing the book, I was telling people about it. And uh, some people, uh, you know, sort of sadly did sort of change their, their view of me. They all of a sudden thought, realized I could see, I couldn't see as well as they thought. Mm-hmm. And so I have, like a paragraph near the end of the book saying, you know, look, I hope that my friends who read this or knew I was writing this uh, will treat me exactly as well as they did, exactly as well or as poorly as they did before. You know, I don't want to change. I want it to be the same. And Keep it the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's worth a shot. Eh? So yeah. have you, so what's your, obviously your first strategy was to, to run some advertising on Amazon. Um, and, and well, it's it's the whole thing is so different than than uh, you know consulting, which I had been doing before. You know, like where you know you're you're really in consulting, you want to do some work, and and you have repeat customers and you have referrals. Um, but you know, the with a book, you know, if somebody really likes the book, it doesn't mean they're gonna they buy five copies every month. They you know they're gonna buy one yeah. and. You know, in Nirvana is they recommend it word of mouth and they write a review, uh, you know, which which would and and mention it on social media if you really want to hit the trifecta. You know. and it's that's um, that's a lot. If anybody does any of those things, it's spectacularly nice because most people read a book and then that's all they do. You know, if if they're in a conversation about books, they might bring it up as a book they just read. Um, it's not a, as common a discussion point as, as would be nice for society. So, yeah. so the whole marketing, as you, you've been saying, is, is different. You need to, need to attract people who you don't know and don't know your friends and don't know your acquaintances and maybe, and, you know, and not being a famous person myself, uh, it's not like my name is going to attract people. To the book. You know, it's not like, you know, it's really great that ex-presidents and presidents can write books 
but you know they're going to be they're going to be bestsellers. Period. No, it doesn't matter what the book says. You know, it'll just happen. And, and uh, one of those things that comes out of that is, and it's interesting if you go to a traditional publisher, what the question I'll ask you is, how big is your platform? And most people, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? What's a platform? And so what they're asking you is, how big is your following? How big is your social media? How many emails do you have? You know, how famous are you? Whatever. And the biggest problem with most authors is they have no platform. Um, and yep. they never built one to start with when they first started doing their book. So they, they basically surprised people with a book suddenly and they didn't have anybody following them necessarily that was even interested in it. And then the next part of that, and then you've got to build a following for that book. And, and another thing we talk about is, is there a business around a book or a book in the business? So yeah. often when people write a book, they'll write a book around their business so they can actually use the book to, to generate more income um, because basically from the book it will become or the book itself becomes the business where you might extend on the book. And so some people who in some cases might read the book and think, I really like this. Could I have a deeper interaction with the author? Could I get some extra stuff? Mm -hmm. Could I get some sort of extra tools or, or even private con you know, consulting if that was available? And so that journey that comes from that book, and that's one of the things we kind of teach when we deal book for client is we want to see what the journey of that reader might be and whether they could actually progress to another, to another level. Um, it, and it could very well be that you refer them on to someone else for, for that matter. But that's where the money could be made from a book ultimately. So it doesn't always mean the book is the money. The other thing too, which can make a bit of extra money for you, is if you've done paperback and I'm sure you've done hardcover, um, but hardcover sell well, um, particularly if you add some extra value to it. So um, make it colour or, or put photos in it or something like that makes a bit more value. You can actually make a bit more money out of the book sale because people will buy something that's more special. And so there's... Well, the, the, um, the pricing is set so that the hardcover is much more expensive than the paperback, more expensive than the ebook. So, you know, I did think about, you know, price elasticity a bit. Uh, now I've got to figure out the audio book price because I'm, I'm finishing that up and that's an exciting thing by itself. But going back to your making money off of books and how do you do it? Uh, I, one of the things I really thought would happen before the pandemic was I would enjoy going around to bookstores, et cetera, and doing book talks. Mm. However, with the pandemic, I'm, I'm a total chicken. I don't want to go anywhere until I'm fully vaccinated. And I'm reluctant to go on planes even for a while after that. Mm. So, yeah. so I'm, I, I still think that's a possibility in the future. I think especially with my book, one thing that has helped me build a social media base uh, is LinkedIn has actually been very helpful. Yes. Because what I've done is I've reached out to a ton of people I didn't know, you know, like thousands of people I didn't know. Mm. I'm now connected to where I basically said, and these are, I basically connected with a whole bunch of people who are either optometrists, opticians, ophthalmologists. They work for blind, low vision groups. They work for guide dogs. They, you know, they did anything related to that. They work for, contact lens companies. They work for eyeglass companies. They, so I'm now connected to thousands and thousands of these people all over the world. And many of them, not many, some of them work for magazines in those fields and wrote book reviews, which is tremendous. I wouldn't, you know, they would have never heard of me. I would have never heard of them. 
mm-hmm. if I hadn't done that. So it, it gives you a little footing. You know, I don't have the equivalent footing in sort of the memoir world and the adventure world, but I, I'll get there. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I mean, one of the things you could probably think about doing, and, and you can do this on Facebook or, or LinkedIn, and particularly if you can get approved for it, is because LinkedIn is harder, is LinkedIn Live. And so what you could probably think about is you could say, look, what if I did my book readings or my book things online live um, to mm. the market space rather than going to the bookstore? Um, because the other, other problem with bookstores too nowadays is they tend to sit in shopping centres and they do, they're very busy and it's very difficult to attract anybody's attention ultimately anyway. But online you could actually do those book um, readings or you know, discussions about the book and talk about it. And that means they're now setting and someone could watch that again in six months' time. So that might be a way to kind of track your audience. Um, and I don't have any videos. I mean, people have interviewed me and, and that's become videos, but I haven't actually made any videos. So I'm looking into that. So it's just, you know, there's so many options there, different tools to use. I'm, I'm still in the... Yeah, and I mean, one thing is to do the videos. One of the interesting things is if you just go live... On, on just a normal phone and start talking and do that um, for a while until you get good at it because initially, you know, you're not that great at it, right? And that's okay because the nice thing about social media in that respect, you just delete them later, right? So you can just go and do something. So oh, that was really bad. I'm going to get rid of that. No one's ever going to see that again. And, and so basically what you do is you go and have those conversations and start those conversations, particularly in LinkedIn. You can start those kind of conversations with people and get them to comment and what you're trying to do then is you're actually getting them to, once they comment and like it, their entire network is also seeing it. So you're actually getting that, that throughput that you normally wouldn't get. Um, and the other thing is very interesting, like I just did the other day, was I we started the show. So what I did is I actually went and I changed my, um, I added a new job title and a new role. And I said, okay, I'm now the podcast host of Startup Secrets. I've got 26,000 connections. Within two hours, I had three or four hundred comments, or in terms of responses in 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 chat, as yeah, well congratulations as congratulations and things. Yeah, because straight away the engine in LinkedIn is sending everybody those messages. What a fantastic opportunity to actually then get in front of those people and talk to them, because the engine is doing it because they like that. So if you can leverage your connections and then get your connections to 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 share it and and like it and comment on it it means it's going to spread out further in terms of the rest of the market. And then happenstance comes from that because suddenly someone sees it and thinks, oh, okay, I'll go and do that. So, yeah, I mean, I think in some cases with social media, particularly people overthink it. And I actually just got off a call with a guy on Facebook ads today and he said, oh, your videos and your ads are a little bit long. They need to be like 15 seconds. And I'm going, what? And I said, yeah, because of ADD, because no one pays any attention, right? So it's not longer than 15 seconds as he said our, our actual algorithm just doesn't handle it well and so basically just wasting your time wow. so in that situation you've got to look at it and think well people got attention deficit disorder here nowadays and particularly you know they're scrolling social media they're just going straight past it um and even if they do go on it then they may not last very long so that you've got that really small window to get there well the other part is if their attention span is 15 seconds uh, they might not read any book ever well, yes and no. Like you'd be surprised because I think what happens is most people's attention it, it is like if it's really not interesting to them, then they stop, they listen, they watch it. I mean, you can get people to sit there and watch Netflix all day. So at the end of the day, you can get them to do it if they're interested enough. But getting that initial attention because of the groundswell. But LinkedIn's really nice because LinkedIn's 
um, user number of users is a lot smaller than you think. Um, so you've got much more engaged users probably than you really got on Facebook even, um, and the ability to go and connect, connect to those people. So you, what you're doing is is smart. You're going out looking for your market, talking to people that might be interested because you've got a, a slant on it that that shows their interest. Um, and maybe there's a book there's bulk sales there maybe in that situation you could make. Yeah, good ideas. Mm, yeah, Thanks. cool. All right. Um, we're running out of time here. So basically, um, I guess a question I've asked a few people over times is what's the best piece of advice you've ever given someone else? Well, I, you know, in, ter in terms of vision, I would, I would say, you know, do everything you can to protect your eyes and anything your eye doctors or recommend in terms of uh, any improvements you could possibly make. But after you do all of that, you just be very grateful for whatever vision you have and don't let that stop you from anything, you know, give it whatever you want to do, give it a red hot go, go for it, enjoy it, enjoy the humor, enjoy the fun of life and just go for it. So that's, I guess that's my advice. It's very funny. I saw an ad and probably a little bit um, crash, but I saw a picture of, I think my sister said it to me, she said, I, my eyes are failing. He said, when I, when I got my eyes fixed, she actually went and got some eye operation. She saw herself on the, in the mirror and she freaked herself out. She said, oh, my God, I got so old. So I said, I'm glad. So probably as you get older, you know, your vision's deliberately designed so that you can't see see yourself well in the mirror. Uh, I think that's, that, that's one of the uh, advantages of poor eyesight is the world is actually a more beautiful place because you, mm. you think about, like, all the great things in nature, you know, fields and mountains and forests and streams and rivers and everything else. Well, if you're if you have poor eyesight, you can see all of that, maybe hopefully, mm. and maybe not see, you know, the power line going across the forest or the litter on uh, here or there, you know. And the same thing with man-made things, with buildings and great skyscrapers and houses and beautiful museums and stuff. You know, like you might not notice that the the stonework is starting to fall apart a little, and you know, there's a little peeling of the paint. So it's, it is more beautiful, as well as the example you brought up. It's like everybody looks better. You know, it's, you know, everybody else could see wrinkles better than I can. And, you know, that's fine. I don't I don't miss that. <laughs> exactly. So I really appreciate your time. And, and we'll put up um, some links about your book and see if we can get you some book sales. Um, Thanks very much. And I really appreciate your time. And, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, will do. That's a wrap on another awesome episode for the Startup Secret Show for Nippernors. Just before you go, if you like this episode, we'd be very grateful for a five-star review. Please also consider recommending the show to a friend or two. Make sure you subscribe for future episodes at StartupSecrets.show right now. Until next time, if you're an entrepreneur, make a start on your next great business idea today.